it's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Yes, there's a lovely rosy glow in the valley. Oil-rich Indians in space. I was just looking for you, Fred. Oil-rich Indians in space. The facts regarding the situation remain the same, state the authorities. Lionel, I said back up. The facts regarding the situation remain the same, state authorities. Don't you know what that means? I'm proud of you boys. I'm proud of the job that you're doing for your country. Go with the glow, boys. Go with the glow. Good gas. Oh, it's bird gas. It's the best. You make it yourself? No, it's come from birds. You know how to pucker up, don't you? Huh? You just put your lips together and whistle. Huh? How much is this gonna cost? Yeah. Yeah. Just back it in. Yeah. Oh, how do you feel about that? I don't feel I'm the executive. Why did I go for a big trip? <laughs> Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike Boyd. Joining me is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Darren Williams. Barrel go boom! Hey kids, on this episode we are talking about Neil Young's Human Highway, co-directed by Young, under his Bernard Shakey name, and Dean Stockwell. The film stars Russ Tamlin as Fred Kelly, a gas jockey and mechanic, who gets a new job working for Young Otto, played by Dean Stockwell. Released in 1982, the film ties into Neil Young's Rust Never Sleeps and punk era of his career. I am frankly not sure if there's a lot to spoil about this movie. You might actually be better off listening to this before you go and track down the movie. So just take that as you will. Darren, when was the first time you saw Human Highway and what did you think? Well, the first time I encountered it was about 20 years ago. I read Steve Pachalski's review of it, which... Wow, he was not kind. And about two or three years after that, I managed to track down a bootleg of the original cut, the non-director's cut. Yeah, I 
I was kind of at that phase in my life where I was determined to love everything that was a cult film that didn't have a good reception. But this took me a time or two. I really liked it, and I really appreciated the loose, shaky quality of the film and the way it kind of anticipated a lot of the things that were happening in 80s comedies that kind of brightly covered nonsensical stuff. But it took me a few views before I really fell in love with it. And Heather, how about yourself? I remember reading, I want to say it was a review written by Michael Weldon, a different a different cult writing legend. And of course, I'm a huge Devo fan. I've been a huge Devo fan since I was, you know, in my teens. And I was obsessed with trying to find this film. And for a long time, it was not the easiest thing to get a hold of. And I'd see little clips of it. In fact, on a lot of the Devo music video compilations, I want to say that the truth about the complete truth about Devolution DVD that Rhino put out, they have the worried man clip in its whole song form. And that was a little teaser. I'm like, oh my God, I got to get this film. And so I finally was able to get the, the director's cut uh, that Neil Young put out. And I was not disappointed. And, you know, when you've anticipated a film for that long, there's always that kind of fear of like, oh, God, is there any way it's going to live up to what you've built in your head? But it actually surpassed it, which kudos, because my brain is a weird space. And and yeah, I mean, this is a cult film lover's dream. I mean, you've got like, like, there's a lot of like Twin Peaks, David Lynch people crossover here you also have fox harris sally you know sally kirkland so many we'll talk we can get at the cast yeah i mean i i loved it it's definitely not for everybody but i think anything really worth viewing is not going to be for everybody i only saw this for the show i remember seeing the vhs at thomas video maybe a few other places but mostly thomas video in their cult film section Sorry, guys, but it's a really ugly VHS cover. It's just got this like hazardous material type thing on the cover. And it really just kind of kept me away because it wasn't appealing at all. And I didn't know anything about it. And then years later, I can't even remember who suggests that we cover this for the show. Might have been you, Heather. I'm not sure because I know. Sounds on brand. (laughs) (laughs) I know how much you like this one. I think you've even been on the Culture Cast to talk about this. So here I am eating Chris Stashew's lunch. But I really found this one to be pretty intriguing. And like you said, all of the crossover with the Twin Peaks stuff, but I had a hard time believing that this was 1982. It feels like this was being done after Twin Peaks. It just feels a little bit more fresh and just the colors, like you mentioned, Darren, stuff was was so bright and so studio bound, but it didn't feel super studio bound. Like it didn't feel like we were on such a set because there are some movies where you feel like oh this is just a set and they'll never leave this place but they're doing some interesting things i mean right from the beginning like when you've got neil young and russ tamblin on bicycles and this really incredibly obvious background that they're riding in front of i just love how fake it is and i love the use of miniatures especially seeing the whole town being laid out hearing The news broadcast from the radio DJs kind of setting up the whole story that there's this competition of bands and that the, the Nukies, the, uh, the Devo band is the Nukies and they seem to work at this nuclear waste treatment plant and how they won last year with their song shrivel up. And, you know, it's, it's great. I was just like, oh, okay. I'm already intrigued and I want to know more about this. Does it move at a lightning fast pace? No, but 
do you feel like you're getting to know these characters each time you watch it? Yeah. And I think that I enjoy this movie more every time I watch it. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like in a own way, like a socially conscious fever dream. And I really respect that because it actually like it's it's a film that there is some definitely kind of like serious themes and under currently the nuclear fear is the biggest one, but there's other things going too, but it never feels preachy. And Neil Young, I think, has always been such an outlier because, of course, you know, when you think of Crosby, Stills and Nash and a lot of their peers, like they already seem like old hat by the time this movie's out, in my opinion. And Neil Young, he's just never gotten that kind of foginess about him. He never seemed overly preachy. He's obviously political, always has been, but he never seems to like ram things down like in that way. Like he never seems like the when people say okay boomer, they don't mean Neil Young. They mean David Crosby. <laughs> Weirdly, Devil would treat them like that though, weren't they? Like the old fogey. Yeah. At the li- but at the live show when he showed up to watch them and they had the audience chanting real dung instead of Neil Young and the the grandfather of granola and all that stuff. So Devo, like a lot of, you know, the punk and new wave bands, they were seeing people like Young as the enemy to an extent until they worked on this, I think. Yeah, there's that whole kill your idols, like the old generations are out of touch. But yeah, Neil Young never really felt out of touch. I remember, I think it was right after this came out, he did the album that was more rockabilly. And he had that, uh, what was it called? Wandering was the song and has a great music video to it. And he just always feels like he was reinventing himself. And I know some of that was kind of a fuck you to the, the label that he was on. Like, you can't put me into a box. I will change every single time I put out a new album. I think that's fantastic. I really appreciate that he was doing that and just lifting a middle finger to the industry that he was in. Oh, 100%. And those three albums are all like classics, too, because it's like, I think everybody's shaken the rockabilly one. There's Old Ways, which is like a traditional country kind of album. And then he did Trans, which is like his experimental sort of scent, like electronic album. And I think that one was the one that was the ultimate deal breaker. What I really like about Neil Young the whole time, though, is that it's not just the record label he was saying that to. He was saying it essentially to his audience. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, even better. He seemed to be entertaining himself a lot of the time. This would be the only time I'll ever probably compare him to Lou Reed. But I love both of them. I'm a usually Reed fan. But the thing I respect about both of them is I feel like they're, these are cats that always have made the music they want to make at that time. And yeah, I don't think Neil Young has ever sold out. I don't think anybody could ever accuse him. If anything, he's run the opposite direction. Yeah, mad respect for the man. Bowie as well, he reminds me of, in just this constant reinvention of himself and who he is and what an audience can expect from him. And like Bowie, he was a major champion of new young music. He wasn't scared by any of it. He's playing adult, essentially. He just has this stupid look on his face through so much of it, but he's a lovable adult. But then he's also playing the super hip, out-of-touch rocker, this Frankie Fontaine character who has like this compador and he sits in the shadows in his limousine and he's got that crazy cigarette lighter and he just feels like the most pompous asshole of all and it's just again neil young making fun of the image that he's supposed to have and really he's more like the dorky lionel that is going around i love that he named himself lionel too because i know he's a huge train fan so why not go with lionel and there are trains 
all over this movie as well, especially some great miniatures. Frankie Fontaine character, I feel like he could almost pass for like the twin of Boris Blank from the band. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying it, Boris Blank is a pompous Vegas guy. He, he isn't. But I mean, the mess staff, everything, that name alone, Frankie Fontaine. I almost wish he would have done like a Chris Gaines thing and had done like a whole album as Frankie Fontaine. I would just be like, love to hear what that would sound like. But yeah, Lionel, Lionel's like almost like him and the Russ Tamplin character. Like they have like this great sort of childlike, not innocence, but there's like a sweetness about them. Like you really love these characters and it's almost kind of like these just like two innocents in this world that seems very much like small town America. But in a mutant kind of form, it's it's got that post-50s sort of atomic feel to it, aesthetically. I was wondering when it's actually meant to be set, because if there's, you know, Native Americans having a space casino in outer space at the same time as Johnny Ray is still on television, what the hell here are we in? I took the Tamblin and Young relationship to be very much vaudeville it's really old school comedy acts if you listen to the way they interacting with each other and double talking over each other and confusing things it's like abbott and costello laurel and hardy to an extent or lewis and martin because there's a lot of jerry lewis in that neil young performance unfortunately there's something about it that also reminds me of another 1982 performance by non-actor stephen king in creep show there's just something that reminds me Majority well, barrel. Of- if instead of being turned into a plant, he was turned into a 1958 Jerry Lewis character, which would have been a better film. That's one thing that maybe on the first viewing people didn't like necessarily was that repartee that they have. And when they're talking about how there was old auto, auto quartz, and that he died of radiation poisoning. And then you've got Lionel, the Neil Young character, talking about, oh, I fix radiators all the time, and I even drink the water from the radiators. And then you've got Fred Kelly, the Russ Hamlin character, being like, no, no, it's because of radios. It comes out of radios. And it's like, instead of like Martin and Lewis, it's almost like two Lewises, you know? And, and Russ Hamlin, with his, his flipping and all of his physical comedy, when he comes into Young Otto's office and falls over that bicycle... He's doing a lot of pratfalls in this. Actually, I think this role's almost the perfect Russ Tamblin like crossover because he's like you have elements of his first iteration like as a Hollywood guy, as a kid actor, and you know he's West Side Story and he's this great physical dancer. And then it's a cult film, so we've got like the Al Adamson. This has nothing to do with Al Addison. Just work with me here on this. And but then we have like art house cult too, which. You know, we end up seeing him in stuff like Twin Peaks. So this film's almost like the bridge. This is almost like a cool kind of bridge period, actually, for a lot of these actors. Because think about it, Dean, Dean Stockwell, when he did this, he was considered, his career was pretty much considered on skids. Oh, my God. Can we talk about Dennis Hopper? Yeah, the, the thing you really want on your film set is a clearly very high and borderline psychotic Dennis Hopper with a knife. That's really all you need on the film set. Yeah, poor Sally. It's, I know, like, she ended up get like getting a tendon severed because she was trying to grab the knife away from him because he was freaking her out. Go figure. And like, he actually he didn't do it on purpose, but I guess she like sued him and all that. And even, but he's so. I mean, Dennis Hopper as a fry cook feeding raccoons pancakes, and the raccoon's name is Amos. He even named it, and you know that shit's not in the scripts, you know. 
you know, he's like, this is Amos. And they're like, yeah, okay, Dennis, that's Amos the Red. My favorite Hopper moment is towards the end when they reprise and worried man. And he does that little bit of business and he's clearly stoned out of his mind. And the look on his face delighted this, this childlike, innocent grin when he pops up at the end. And he's so high, so high. High on life. You mentioned the script, and I have to say what script. Apparently, they were writing stuff down as they're doing it, so there really wasn't a script that they were working off of, and it feels like that sometimes. Other times, I'm just like, okay, yeah, this... I mean, you've got really, you know, all of these actors that we've mentioned are really strong actors. The only real non-actors in here are the musicians, and Neil Young, I mean, he does freaking fantastic job of this you would never think that this guy was not an actor yeah absolutely if you can match a guy like russ tamblin you got the goods it almost made me wish like he would have done more movies which is something i very rarely ever say about musicians (laughs) who aren't who aren't like david bowie (laughs) during during acting though almost reminds me of joe strummer when he was talking about mystery train he was just like yeah, I'm going to keep acting until assholes like Don Johnson quit singing. Oh, God, I miss him. <laughs> Lynch came up a little earlier. Do you know if he ever actually saw this film, David Lynch? It feels like he must have. I mean, with Charlotte Stewart in here, a.k.a. Mary X from Eraserhead, a.k.a. Uh, Major Briggs's wife in Twin Peaks, and oh, gosh, she was in a few other Lynch things, if memory serves, and then it feels like this is a tryout tape for Blue Velvet and then for Twin Peaks, because with Dean Stockwell and Dennis Hopper in that and Blue Velvet, and then you've got your Russ Tamblin and Charlotte Stewart inside of Twin Peaks. I mean, yeah, it just feels like there's such connections going on here. I would think that he must have seen it just to, to be nice to Charlotte, at least. And not only that, the scene where, well, it's different depending on which edit of the film you've been watching, but in the original, it's... Tali Kirkland just after she's been fired and she's sitting there and she's playing the end of the world on the jukebox and she looks up at that picture of old Otto which I think is the biggest laugh in the film just that Dean Stockwell looking so saintly in such a bad wig and false beard and there's that train running through the background with a house in the middle of it passing through the window it feels like something from the double R it feels like you're in Twin Peaks the entire Maybe it's just a woman crying with an old rock and roll song on the soundtrack, but it feels Lynchian, the entire thing. It's in the wheelhouse. It's adjacent, I think, 100%. So we really haven't talked too much about the plot of this movie, and there's not really a lot going on. There's this whole thing with a diner slash garage. So there's the diner and there's the garage with the gas pumps outside. So you've got young Otto, who is now taking over the family business since his dad died of radiation poisoning, and he is setting up new rules. But at some point he gets the idea, and we don't really get when he gets this idea, but at some point he says, you know what, I'm just going to fire everybody and then I'm going to torch the place and collect the insurance money. I don't know why you would fire people first. It feels like you would just torch the place and be like oh sorry you don't have a place to come back to for work but maybe i'm planning too much of this but planning ahead i should say so you've got the the mechanic and the gas jockey out front and they're doing their things they've got the people in the diner it's mostly the waitresses and dennis hopper is the fry cook 
and then occasionally odd characters come in. And then on the other side of town, you've got Devo, who are these nuclear waste management guys in these red jumpsuits. And I love how the red is just being overemphasized and just kind of popping off of the screen. They, they are literally glowing with radiation and they load up the truck with all this nuclear waste. And then Boogie Boy jumps onto the truck and a little Boogie Boy goes a long way. Let me just say that. Oh, how dare you? I love Boogie Boy. Oh my God, Mike. <laughs> Boogie Boy, the, he's the best part of this film. Come on. And I think Boogie Boy is the only character in this film with any kind of awareness of what's going on. During the Worried Men song, his little speech about everyone's reaching for that big ice cream cone in the sky, he's in prison with any kind of awareness. Within Devo, he was the, what, the infantilized de-evolution of man? That was his intended role? And General Boy's son. I am a super nerd of Devo. But yeah, no, that's a good, that's a good descriptor. People, actually, in fairness, Mike, people do tend to have very hot and cold reactions to Boogie Boy. If you're Rod Reuter, if that, if you're that much of a diva nerd for all you deep cutters out there, you you will not like Boogie Boy. I remember somebody online actually asked Jerry Casale about, about like, why do you guys use that creepy mask? And Jerry, like, went on some, <laughs> this is when Bush Jr. was in office on some pissy rant about, oh, I'm glad you're scared of a little mask when we have a war criminal <laughs> Oh, the piss, it delighted me. <laughs> piss and vinegar of Jerry Casale. Boogie Boy is just such a striking presence, and he really stands out in this film because he's got that Mickey Mouse, hey Pluto voice, and that mask, which always reminds me slightly of, uh, you remember the mask in Alice Sweet Alice? Yeah, it's just got that similar vibe to it for me. And he's just, this this voice of anarchy. And that's the thing, if someone watches this film and doesn't, like it i can understand that but surely everyone's got to appreciate this film if just for devo and neil young doing hey hey my mind together yeah and boogie boy is just steals every scene he's in but yeah you're right it's better that they do underuse him really in the film because if he became any more he would tend to i think he'd overbalance the film slightly it's just the voice the voice gets to me after a little bit and then like some of the weird things where he's just like mama's got a big butt and i'm just like what <laughs> all right oh, oh i live for the barrel girl boom yeah um i mean that's bird on barrel <laughs> that poor scene the where it's like barrel go boom barrel go, and it's like no it didn't we're not seeing that we're seeing like the front projection and the something is skidding and i'm like okay i'm supposed to assume that this barrel fell off of this truck but i'm not really seeing it because you couldn't really afford to shoot that. That's okay. I understand. And then poor Peggy Young, who is Neil Young's wife at the time, she is behind the truck. And I think you see her again at the end, but she has been cut out of the non, the director's cut quite a bit. Cause she shows up at least like two or three more times than the original VHS version of this. Are you naughty boy, Neil? Yeah. Cut me. Yeah. Cut me ex-wife. <laughs> I do have to say that My Struggle by Boogie Boy is out on archive.org and available for download for anybody who wants it. So quite interesting. It's like 291 pages. It feels like a like a real old school zine. There's all of this cut and paste of text and images with ironic 
captions underneath. It was very neat to read. I had a good time going through that. What a world. I love I love that we have archive.org. Same here. Not to turn it to a commercial for them, but what a resource. At least for like, now. <laughs> oh, not going on. Yeah. Until the barrel goes boom. Darren, your your take would be almost being like, would you almost consider like a weird sort of like moral sort of uh, Greek chorus? Yeah, well, I think Devo in general are serving as the Greek chorus, more so in the original cut where they bring the radio station into director's cut to kind of serve that purpose a little bit. And, you know, Worried Man, I mean, do you know the original version of that song? It's mostly like an old hand, yeah. Yeah, and they took it from, I think it was an Appalachian folk song before that, but apparently the original is about someone waking up on a bank and finding himself imprisoned and not really knowing the crime. There's something to that of that being used as the recurring song for this film where, you know, everyone's life in the world, but especially in this little valley, is trapped and sort of ended by nuclear wars, by the threat of nuclear power. And it's just transposing that original idea of your life not being in control of dark forces that you have no say in assembling against you. And I think that's why they picked that song to use as the recurring thing. But yet, even within that group, Oogie Boy, I don't know if he's the voice of morality exactly, but he's he's kind of the only one who's awake at all. He's the only one who realizes how dangerous this is. Everyone else is so blasé about it all now. The people respond to it. Like there's that scene later on in the diner where one of the customers is complaining because everyone else tabs has been stopped, but Devo are allowed one because they work at the nuclear plant. And there's this weird almost defense and belief and blind faith in nuclear power that the same way as patriotism isn't usually portrayed in films like this. It's And Boogie Boy is the only one really not caught in that trap, not, not so completely blind to everything that's actually going on around him. I do love Dennis Hopper, that scene where he's, he's like, go with the glow, boys, go with the glow, like he's all... And you're right, it does have that kind of, that that very like sort of uber patriotic kind of tone. I feel like there's almost... And I may, if I'm talking out of my talks here, you guys, both of you, please, like, be like, girl, what are you doing? What are you saying? But I feel like there's also kind of almost like a classism, or not classism, but like a class commentary, because like, all of our main characters are working class. And I mean, they live in this this area where the only, real, like, real availability you have to survive is like, working at a diner, working as a fry, you know, a, a fry cook, working you know, as a guy pumping gas, working at a, fa- a factory, like a nuclear factory. And even Otto, who, I mean, he, I mean, I guess he's the closest thing that we have to like a traditional villain, but Otto's like almost just seems like kind of like an emasculated putz in the big scheme of this universe that even he doesn't really seem that bad. It's like, it's almost like the villain in this film is more of just almost just sort of like it's it's nuclear energy, but it's also just the mess that we've, that humanity has basically sort of sown itself into. Yeah, and both Young and Stockwell were big environmentalists as well, and Young was really, he was part of No Nukes, wasn't he? I believe, yeah. Yeah, which is so which is so cool to talk about guys, both of them being ahead of their time. Like, Dean, I think a lot of people know that about, like, Young, but a lot of people realize, like, Dean Stockwell's always been kind of this very cool, like, countercultural activist kind of guy. And also very like supportive of weird art. Like even in his like golden years, he was making like media, like visual media art out of things like dice and 
<laughs> you know, like like sort of like mixed media kind of things and just i love yeah and in addition to being like this great actor you know dean stockwell like this whole film is like everybody i love seeing in cinema any of these any of these people and now neil young i'm like now i'm like what if there's like an alternate universe and creep show where jordy verrill is played by neil young <laughs> as Lionel? but i love that especially because like you think about these i mean hopper stockwell and tamblin are all guys that basically kind of grew up with the hollywood system and rejected it and were just kind of had that anti-conformity kind of thing just rooted into them and same with neil young but neil young is able to see outside the rock star bubble like this is a guy that never really seemed to ever get himself in that bubble and that's a hard thing to do fame of any kind and especially just that era of rock gods you know and just i mean even and and some of the, and that's shit a lot a lot of people can't even shake. I mean, not to not to disparage the dead, but I mean, even David Crosby when he was still alive, some of his tweets, you could tell he still like viewed himself like I'm the voice of a generation. And I don't I don't ever feel like Neil Young comes across like that. You know, like I feel like he's just he's just a really smart guy. He's the guy you could talk with, and he's not going to be an asshole to you and bullshit you or talk down to you more importantly i think that's the thing is as experimental and weird as this film because a lot of people that are anti-art house one haven't really seen a lot of it but also maybe they had a bad experience where they saw a film that was pretentious and they felt talked down to for being like a cult esoteric film i feel like this is a film that is having the viewers on the level with it if that makes sense and i think that's super cool that's something i always really appreciate it's really weird to think that just a few years prior to this, that Hopper, Tamblin, and Stockwell were all in the last movie. I mean, these guys are all like Dean Stockwell was a child star. Tamblin started off very young. Hopper started off very young. That these guys had been through the ringer, you know, wor working their way up and being rebellious and just all of these things that they remained friends for all these years and are still working on projects together is pretty wild to me. Well, Stockwell and Tamblin were in a film together when they were, what, like nine or ten, something like that? The last movie, I mean, that's where this all starts, really, isn't it? Because Hopper, I think he said he had a deal with Universal, post-Easy Rider, that they would match the money he put up on a film. And he said to Dean Stockwell, do you want to write a script? And Stockwell came up with After the Gold Rush, which I think has been lost, hasn't it, the script for it? And then you were talking a little bit before we started recording about how human highway came about what was that whole story stockwell he'd written after the gold rush and neil young came in and agreed to do the soundtrack album for it. so that's where after the gold rush the album comes from he was planning the um the thing for that and the film that he was writing was about the end of the world it was about people in topanga and basically there's a giant tidal wave the last shot of the script apparently was this giant giant tidal wave coming to destroy everything that never got made. And then Young and Stockwell threw around ideas for something called The Tree from Outer Space, which sounds wildly trippy. It was about a tree that could turn into a rocket and it takes off into space with this variety of people who've gone exploring the tree. And they set up this new civilization based around the tree. And the tree was powered by giant organ that you had to play music at the right thing and the tree could fly because of it. And that never happened either. And Human Highway just came out of all that. It came out of, let's work together. Let's do this script. This didn't work. Let's do this script. This didn't work. And then 
he moved on then, and Young first wanted Human Highway to be basically about the life of a rock star on the road. So it would have been, I think, Frankie Fontaine character or something like that. And that's what the Wizard of Oz-esque dream sequences in this film are. They're from that original film in the, you know, the bonfire scene and the devil and all that. And it eventually transformed into Human Highway. And what we were saying about old Hollywood and Heather was saying about, you know, everyone in this rejecting old Hollywood, the film is still incredibly in debt to old Hollywood. And Young said that when, I think he said this in his autobiography, but he wanted everything to look deliberately fake because he felt in old films, the more fake they looked, the realer it became. And this this is almost Brecht here. They're now fake it looks. It's constantly reminding you, this is a film. This is a film. These are fake. These are sets. These are miniatures. And yeah, so it all came from that. But I think it uses some Hollywood's tropes and plotting and it uses some classic Hollywood so just references there's constant references to films and old music like um Charlotte Stewart at one point is singing I can't give you anything but love baby from bringing a baby for obvious reasons Neil Young is whistling somewhere a lot and obviously there's an in-joke with Tamblin but to have and have not is sort of misquoted halfway through with Geraldine Barron and Dean Stockwell but I think Dean Stockwell in this is playing it like he's in a screwball, like he's the straight man role in the screwball. He's the only one who's underplaying, really, and not doing the big reactions to a thing. I think it's a brilliant comedic performance that's kind of overshadowed a little bit by what Young and Tamblyn are doing, but I think he's incredible in this Dean Stockwell. From what I understand, just the name Russ Never Sleeps is somehow coming from Devo, that Boogie Boy had that written across his nappy, that rest never sleeps and there's debate i've read a, a devo biography where it's you know somebody was saying oh yeah because we worked at this advertising agency and it's like no you never actually actually worked at an advertising agency so don't lie kind of thing but like was it a commercial slogan for like rustoleum we don't know kind of thing but rust never sleeps the album comes out in 79 this movie comes out in 82 so you can tell that this had been in the works for a long time because that recording of Devo playing with Neil Young doing Hey, Hey, My, My, Into the Blue, Out of the Black, or whatever name you want to call that song. I mean, that feels like it was being shot and done in like 78, 79, and Rust Never Sleeps comes out in 79, and Live Rust is, or sorry, yeah, Live Rust is also 79. You've got Hawks and Doves and reactor and trans and you can hear part of i think it's part of reactor in the movie when frankie fontaine rolls down his window you get to hear what is it mr soul i think is the name of the song and but i know of course too when we're talking about this movie we're talking about two different cuts of it so i don't know if that was the song that was playing in the original version of it when it came out in 82 or if that was later on when he did the director's cut and changed out some of the songs yeah that's weird the music changing isn't it it completely throws you because the first time i've ever watched the two cuts back to back was full of this and i was just is the music different in this like it's a strange little thing that's going on there but yeah i've heard that devo story too and i think it probably kind of makes sense that it was that that performance would have been filmed in 77 78 because it's a very punk performance and punk had Apart from the cartoony punk, the punk itself that they were doing had pretty much died out by the early 80s. 
Yeah, so I think it's mixed, it's more natural. That would have been filmed early and the slogan would have come from them. But I also think that Devo and Neil Young, to an extent, are taken... You, you know that thing Tom Waits does in interviews, or he used to do? He would always lie to the interviewer. He'd always make up a story of whatever entertained him most. I think there's a lot of that going on with this. Oh, I can definitely see that, yeah. What isn't evidenced by film, I don't tend to believe about this movie. Which is 100% fair. That is... <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think I'm wrong for doing that. I'm not calling anybody a liar directly. It's just that it feels like there's a lot of memories. There were probably a lot of drugs involved, all this kind of stuff. And then a lot of time passed. You know, if it, the whole thing of, you know, this here's the story of Johnny Rotten and then Mark Mothersbaugh being like, I don't want to say Johnny Rotten. And, you know, what kind of connotation does Johnny Rotten have in 77 versus 82? Pretty different. There was no Johnny Rotten by 82. He'd gone back to John Lydon. It looked like from what I could tell, Devo started doing Worried Man as part of their set, going back to at least 78. But it was usually when they were as their alter ego band, Dove, the Band of Love, where they would come out wearing like visors and these hideous, hideous, like kind of leisure suits and were basically like a pseudo Christian type band. And they would open for Devo and there'd be times where apparently they'd get booed. Because the audience, if you see any performances of them as Dove, it's like, how did you guys not know this was Tifo? I mean, it's pretty, there's not many people that look like Mark Mothersbaugh. There's not many people that look like Jerry Casale, you know? And the shrivel up connection, because Dove appears as Dove in the 1980 Dabney Coleman movie, Prey TV. But they're performing shrivel up, which is weird because shrivel up's about basically like a man cannot get an erection. It's like Devo's Destroyer, not Kiss Destroyer, but Kink's Destroyer. And so to have Dove, you know, singing Shervala, I, I love Devo. I've never seen the whole movie, but I've seen that clip. And it's not to be confused with the 1982 TV movie with John Ritter, Prey TV. There are two Prey TVs back like two years, within two years. The whole sequence in here, so we should, probably should talk a little bit about the dream sequence, because like I said, there's not a ton going on, but at one point, Frankie Fontaine shows up and uh, Lionel is just so enamored. And he's like, oh, you got a, got a noise in your rear end. And then eventually starts to fix the car and this wrench falls on his head and he goes into this dream sequence. And in that, basically you're seeing, you were saying concert footage, you're seeing a little bit of a road movie. You see this performance by Devo doing, was it Come Back Johnny? from uh, the very very first album and i love how they're dressed in this these like cowboy outfits and stuff you know like another great alternate devo that we have with this this cowboy band doing comeback johnny and then yeah we get whole sequence of them doing a hey hey my my with neil young and that's fantastic i love that song and i love seeing them play it and i love seeing just devo basically destroying that song it's so fun Oh, Devo doing covers in general. I mean, that one is definitely on my list of favorites. I mean, right next to, you know, obviously Worried Man, Satisfaction. There's on a live Devo album called, I think when I say it's called, or originally it's called like Now It Can Be Told, but I think it has a different name since it's been re-released. But they do a medley that somewhere, and it's called Somewhere With Devo, the whole thing's called, but they like at one point incorporate the West Side Story song. Which is so, I didn't even think about, like, the whistling of somewhere in this movie until <laughs> you said that. And I'm like, oh, shit, wait, that comes up again with Devo. 
Which again, that's kind of a gift. This is one of those movies where there's all these little things. It definitely does merit like multiple rewatchings because there's going to be so many things you miss. I'm hoping like more people will seek it out because, you know, I'm thinking like, wouldn't it be great if we got like a re-release of this with both cuts? And speaking of links, there's also um, Harper as well with Out of the Blue. Oh my God. How did I even miss that? Thank you. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. That's so, I don't, that's, that's the thing. There's so much. And like, give us commentary tracks. Because that Blu-ray doesn't have a whole lot in the way of supplements. And it's like, most of these, I mean, a good amount of these people are still with us. Young is, Tamblin is. Speaking of links, um, this is a bit tenuous, but the whole thing with Mrs. Robinson showing up, did she remind you of a John Waters character? Because I could hear Edith Massey saying those lines. And... At one point, she calls out Dennis Harper's name, which is Cracker, and of course, Crackers in Pink Flamingos. Does anyone else think that was deliberate? I don't know if it was deliberate, but when she was like, Cracker, Cracker, are you going to start talking about the eggs now? What's going on? I did not think that now I won't be able to unthink it. Like The next time I watch this, I'm like, holy shit, Darren is right. It's all I see. And you know, I, I have to mention, because you guys, this is like part of my religion at this point. Fox Harris is in this movie as an a- an Arab, a a bisexual Arab. A- uh, yes, yeah, who had already had sex with the waitress. I've tried you already. I hollered. I oh, I kvetched. I did somersaults in my heart because I'm not that physically spry. If I tried to do a literal somersault, your girl would be in a cast right now. But Irene, I believe it's Irene. Because he tries to, like, woo this, like, stud milkman played by David Blue, who's a total dick to Perlinal, by the way. I, I was like, oh, he's the real villain. Fuck it. He's the real villain. <laughs> and the milkman's the villain. Being mean to Lionel. And then Fox Harris. And for anybody listening, like, who's Fox Harris? Fox Harris is this gem of a character actor. Best known probably for being the guy with the sunglasses and Repo Man that's driving the car with the loot but of course for all you steven sadian people out there he's in dr calgary uh and he fox harris is just one of those guys he's great in everything i mean he's in this movie for five minutes and just the faces he makes when he goes i you know i already have like you know because she's like try me and he's he's just like and he makes this like undulation with his mouth that only fox harris could do i was just like oh he, you know, they have a term, I think, in drag where, like, if a girl's picking the apples, she's going to get a lot of tips because she's reaching her hands. Those legs are kicking. She is working that stage. Fox Harris picks the entire orchard. He is apple picking. And I love him for it. Inclusion of the milkman does lead to a scene I can't watch, which is the milk bath sequence during the dream sequence. Oh, that disgusted me. Is that in all versions or is that just in the... The, the VHS version. I believe it's cut down in the director's cut, but it is in there. It is in there, but a shorter, shorter version. It's much shorter. Yeah. Are you? Do you have a thing with milk? Is milk like super gross to you? No, it's not milk being super gross to me. It's just that image of him lying there covered and with the straw. It's just there's something really upsetting about that. This really unwholesome that scene. We all have triggers. I had a friend who she she's like, oh god, gummo disturbed me. And I'm like, well, that's normal. But, you know, what was, was that scene where he's in the bathtub eating? And she was like, that. She's like, I had to turn it off with that. And I'm like, that was in combo? That was your... <laughs> that really? No, I'm done. 
actually, but people think it was somebody else who, like, Edith Massey covered in eggs was like, they were fine with the singing anus and the feces, but the hard-boiled eggs on poor Edie's shivering cleavage was just much too much. What can you do? That was my reaction to this. Oh, th- there was no need to see that. Yeah, you could have cut that. So we were talking about the radiation and all this, and there's a, at one point there's a, uh, guess it's an earthquake, but they call it a roller that's going through here. And then later on, we just have all out nuclear war. And I guess wherever this is being set, and I guess it has to be around California, Nevada border because of the Cal Neva patches. Yeah. The jumpsuits that Devo have, they get obliterated by nuclear war and you get to see it coming from both sides. It looks like both a, a American missile and a Russian missile are both coming towards this town and just wipes it out. Except for Boogie Boy. Boogie Boy's the only one that's left, and he gets to give this whole discussion about, you know, how bad this is, this glowing hellscape now that they're in. But that's before then they have a musical reprise of Worried Man with all of the the characters there with their shovels and their civil defense symbols on there. And I love when when a whole movie just turns into a musical out of nowhere. I absolutely love that. Oh my God, same. Same. The first time I watched it, I was like overjoyed. And Fox Harris is a part of the ensemble. I really, and we get to see like Russ and Lionel, like you know, dancing through that thing on the shovels with their feet. Yes, that's amazing. Tumbling actually choreographed it, didn't he? I believe so. And I love Sally Kirkland's like, she gets like extra raunchy with some of her gyrations. She is like, Reminded me, she's in um, this really great Rip Torn movie called Coming Apart, and she does like a sexy dance, and it's almost like it's it's like that, but Coming Apart's way, way, way darker. <laughs> Believe it or not, this film has nuclear annihilation, but that's the thing, it's a kind of a light viewing, despite the world ending. Yeah, well, and it ends on not necessarily a hopeful note, but this whole thing of the limo pulling up to this huge staircase that seems to be going up to heaven and all of the characters ascending that all to takes a worried man going on in the background and everything. This is one of the few movies I will watch the entire credits every single time just for the music and also to watch the people going up the stairs. And then of course you have that great tagline at the end, watch for human highway three. And I'm like, am I reading that wrong? say two and my eyes are too old no i'm pretty sure it says three the thing is it is a light viewing but when you think about it all the things this film sets up so dean stockwell as the nominal villain lionel wanting to be a music star and lionel and charlotte will anything happen with them or everything it sets up that you think is going to be a plot point it all comes to nothing because nuclear war just comes and just ends everything for them and to me that's like young and stockwell just saying well look you may have all these plans, you may have all these dreams, you may have all these hopes, but if we don't do something about the nuclear weapons, they could all come to nothing. Because one day, when you're dicking about, the world could end. It's really dark, but it's really breezy at the same time. It's subversive, like, in that way that I really like it, because it is, it does have this, like, deceptive tone of lightness, but then... And actually, one thing I wanted to ask you two about and see what you guys think is, like, with that dream sequence, there's that whole section where... They're with a bunch of Native Americans and they're doing like a ceremony and they're like burning all of these old wounded Indians, which at the time I remember my first viewing, I took that as being like a symbolic thing of burning 
Because when you think of like when Indians think of like cigar stores and, you know, basically stuff made by like white people for money. Yeah, like you go to a craft fair. So I don't know, you know, like something like that. I took it like maybe this is like like symbolic of trying to sort of rid that sort of colonial kind of oppressor energy. But I but I could be 100 percent wrong. I don't know. Like, What did you guys think about that section? Like, what were your takeaways? First time I saw it, I thought Easy Rider rides again, to be honest about that, that whole section. But I think there's definitely a lot. To, I do really like that section, but I think there's a lot to what you were saying, because the whole thing about how, you know, the Native Americans are really the only ones who are going to survive this because they've got a space casino. So they would have been away from the war. They've got this spaceship flying around. They would have been away from the war. They would have been away from the destruction. And I think it's that slightly 70s hangover from the hippie thing of back to the land, back to, you know, the native beliefs and the way things used to be. And I think Young was really big into that. And that's what he was pushing for as a move away from this nuclear age that we were heading towards. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a possibility. What about you, Mike? It almost feels to me like Neil Young making amends and being like, hey, these are because I don't know if you necessarily see wooden Indians as being a symbol of oppression, but feels a little weird, especially to talk about another version of Creepshow, Creepshow 2, where the wooden Indian gets revenge and Holt McCanny, where he's got the long hair that's going to get him paid and laid. feels like the wooden Indian is, you know, it's getting its revenge on you know, the white man and, and just all of these creeps that are in this town. And when the Indians just always kind of, it feels very crass to me for some reason, just like, what are you doing? Why is it this, you know, native American person that you're using to sell your goods that you put them outside of here. And there are so many wooden Indians in this movie. It is wild when you start looking like, well, there's one in the office. Oh, actually there's two in the office. Oh, there's three in the back of the, the the service station, you know, just they're everywhere. And so when they actually show up in the dream sequence, I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. And to see them being burned and everything, I was like, all right. If to me, it felt like, okay, we're getting rid of this past oppression. And this feels like young is kind of trying to come to some sort of agreement, understanding with native Americans. It's also further than that wizard of Oz thing, of course, though, because everyone from the film, including the Wooden Indians, show up in the dream sequence because it is. And if you think about that dream sequence, it even starts with a, basically a mini tornado thing going on when Lionel's struggling towards the phone booth and everything's just blowing past him. And I think it shows something about how limited Lionel's dreams really are, that even in his wildest fantasies of being a rock star, his sexual debauchery amounts to the milk bath and his backing band are these you know, wooden Indians that he's had around him the entire time. I think it's just showing, I think this world is all a very small place. I mean, this is a place where people are genuinely getting excited about a talent contest at a nuclear power plant. And that's genuinely a talking point. And on the radio, it's a very small, very insular town. And, you know, Lionel's dreams are very small and very insular as a result. There was something I meant to ask, actually, going back. I don't know if this is just a thing of, you know, I'm British and you guys are American. The gas made by or made by birds. So is that a reference to something that I'm not getting? Not that I know of. Um, yeah, I didn't get it. I just yeah. thought it was whimsical. I yeah. Just... yeah. I found it interesting in the because there's, there's a ton of bird imagery in here. You've got the crow that's going on that actually 
pays a visit to to both Lionel and to Boogie Boy. You've got the at one point, and I'm not sure if it's in both dream sequences, but there's the oil pump that is dressed like a bird. You've got the owl, and you, they've got that whole hoo hoo conversation that they're doing, and then they cut to the owl, and the owl is there constantly through this movie. So I was like, okay, I don't know what's going on with the birds. And then, you know, you're talking about the Indians. And then I'm also thinking about Devo dressed as cowboys. I'm like, are we supposed to like pull all this stuff together into something? But yeah, bird gas. And, you know, one guy's talking about a literal bird. I think it's Neil Young's talking about the crow that's visiting him. And then you've got Russ Tamblin out there polishing the pumps and he's talking about bird gas. So I don't know if it was just a easy joke that they wanted to go for or what it was. I just thought there might have been you know, like a something back in the seventies or something, there was an actual firm in America advertising like a ecologically more friendly gas or something like that. And they were riffing on that a little bit, but I wasn't sure because that's a little bit out of my cultural knowledge. No, that does actually, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause, um, I forgot, like we have to mention that scene where Bougie boy drinks the gas. And he's like, what, I'm trying to think what the line is like, Oh, that's some good gas. And he's like, that's birds. gas. <laughs> the only other thing i can think of is there was a band called bobby bird and the family bird and they spelled it with the b-y-r-d and they had a song called gasoline that's the only other thing i can think of damn that's a deep cut yeah it's a bit <laughs> oh mike i love that oh my god that was from 79 though so i don't know if that even fits in our timeline so I don't know, we're trying to pull together all the various threads of a film that was written as they went along. I mean, there's five credited screenwriters for this film, and I fe- if watching it, it feels like it should have been more. It feels like it should have been every actor, every cast member, some guys they met in a bar the night before, and a couple of passing lumberjacks should have been credited with the script on this, because I, I don't know if... And it's always a thing with any kind of criticism. If this is just us projecting what we know of Young, what we know of Stockwell backwards onto the film, or if this stuff was there in their heads, if it was planned, if it was planned for it to be so anti-plot in a way, but it, it feels like it must, even amidst all the drug taking and all the excess that was going on on that set, it feels like it was planned for it to be this way. And I don't know how many drugs were being consumed other than by Dennis Hopper. I never got the feeling that Neil Young was really into the drug scene, you know, as opposed to his bandmates from Ciesa and and Y. Oh, no, no, I don't think he was ever extremely into it, but he was getting high. Certainly. Yeah, yeah. And I think everyone on that set was getting high for definite. Apart from Devo, possibly, who feel like explorers dropped into another world in this film. I believe they designed their costumes because I feel like I remember Casali and the commentary track on the music video did was talking about like how uncomfortable, but they designed like the tubes going through the nose and just had this whole thing about Devo constantly suffering for their art because so much of their gear that they would design, I mean, they're making it out of man-made materials. So, and back then we're, I mean, not like things are much better with FDA or whatever. It's worse now, probably who knows, but it wasn't, they got a lot of rashes. Got a lot of, you know, they did suffer, but but what a great look. Yeah, it does feel like they, but it kind of adds to it. I mean, this film should feel like anybody listening to us who haven't seen it are probably going to think this film is going to be a hot mess. And it's going to be a vanity project. 
And I would never use any of those descriptors for it. Like, it's certainly not a vanity project because, I mean, it's not Neil Young beating his chest and being like, look at me, I'm brilliant. Like, it's so collaborative. And I mean, he even used a fake name for a director. I mean, you'd have to be like a Neil Young fan to know that. So it's kind of like an in-joke, but it's not really vanity. And and it does, even though it's dreamy and non-linear in a way that this film is, it doesn't feel messy. It should. By everything we're saying, it should be almost unwatchable right but it's totally not like it's if anything it's actually very rewatchable yeah i think the things that we if you take it in isolation you know so many plot strands don't go anywhere lots of the performances feel like they're in different films to each other all these things that are going on these are the reasons why it works the reasons why it all comes together it's yeah it's 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 a fascinating film because However much you unpick it, and unless Young actually gives the definitive word on it, we're never going to be sure since, you know, Dean Stockwell is sadly gone now. You can't really be sure of anything in this film, and that's part of the reason why it works as well. So, oh yeah, one other thing I want you to bring up, the uh, the DJs, the, the group chorus, when it switches to the female voice at the end, is she meant to be on the space station? She's saying the exact same thing that he was saying at the beginning of the movie, which is odd that she's saying it, the exact same stuff. Yeah, but then her last words, over to you, I can't remember the male DJ's name, she says, over to you, and then she repeats his name again, like, where are you? So is she meant to be on the spaceship, this space casino? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know, because it feels like we wouldn't be able to get their signal from space, but uh, we are seeing the train at that moment, I think. It just was. It was something that puzzled me a little bit. So much love gone into this, even though it was so ramshackle. And there's so much love. And I would much rather have this kind of mishmash of a film of dragging in elements of all these different things of people saying, "Well, this is what I'm passionate about." Because you feel like you're getting to see inside someone's head. Then you feel like you're seeing the world through their eyes, which is not bloated. It's not self-indulgent. It's not a vanity piece. And I can think of comedy films that are that, and this isn't it. This absolutely isn't it. This is what art should be doing, is taking you into someone's worldview, and it's dropping you there, and it's saying, make what you can out of this. It's not explaining everything to you, and I love that about it. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Charlotte Stewart, who plays Charlotte Goodnight in Human Highway, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Hello, this is Will, a writer of three films plus a Christmas special. And this is Kevin, a writer of one and a bit films and three and a bit episodes of TV. Okay. We're screenwriters by day, podcasters by night. Yeah, okay, Batman. (laughs) And we're the hosts of The Best Bits, a show where each episode we pick our favourite film scenes from randomly selected, weirdly specific themes. Such as best fly scene, best sex scene, and best Tom Cruise running scene. Why should I know these things? Do you know them? And we have the world's first podcasting AI to keep us on the straight and narrow. Say hello, Podbot. Hello. So, if you're looking for another film podcast to subscribe to, why not check us out? The Best Bits with Will Collins and Kevin Lehan. And Podbot. Yeah, it's good crack. <laughs> Irish crack. So if you want legal crack, subscribe to Best Bits Podcast. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Show. 
said that you're going to be 82 this year you've been acting for what 60 years now how old were you when you first started getting into acting i went to acting school when i was 17 right out of high school and i got my first job when i was 18 it was on the loretta young show remember the loretta young show you're too young she was a big movie star back in the day and she had a tv show on sunday nights and that was my first uh, paying part the next year, I want to say you had you were like one of the three main characters in Damaged Goods. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Actually, that was a very low, low budget film. Um, that's how I got my agent. Actually, it was I did Damaged Goods before I did the other one. So Damaged Goods was like the first acting part I got paid for. They paid scale, but I got my agent, so that was fine. And Damaged Goods was just a little love story, but the way he paid for it was it had to have an information section in the middle where the young man goes to see his doctor and he's got, he's been, he got VD. <laughs> so there was an information insert in the middle of the movie. He got it from the bad girl, not from me. No, no, I wouldn't expect to get it from you. There are a few roles that you did where you weren't credited as Charlotte Stewart. You were Charlotte Considine. Considine. Yeah, I was married to Tim Considine, and I married him when I was 24. It was just a, kind of a, you know, an honorable thing to do, to take your husband's name. You know, a lot of actresses did it back in the day. So I did it, but then the marriage didn't last, and I went back to Stewart. I think I only did one or two shows uh, as Considine. I think that was your name when you were in Speedway. The, I think that was an Elvis picture, right? Could have been. Tim and I had just been married, and Elvis and Priscilla had just been married. And I, when I met Elvis, I thought, oh, I'm going to invite them over for dinner. <laughs> Have you ever heard of more ridiculous them in your life? <laughs> I don't know. I just felt that, you know, we were somehow the same, you know. <laughs> Honest to God, I think I was so naive. I have to ask you, how did you get cast in Eraserhead, and how long was that shoot for you? I got cast in Eraserhead because uh, this was just before Little House on the Prairie. And my roommate, Doreen Small, was a volunteer at the Film Institute in Beverly Hills. And David Lynch was a student there. And he, was, he had just made a couple of shorts as part of his schooling. And he was making a movie called Eraserhead. And he was looking for an actress to play Mary. And Doreen said, my roommate's an actress. <laughs> That's how I got it. <laughs> we invited David out for dinner, he and his wife. And I was living in Topanga Canyon, which is kind of a nice mountainy area outside of L.A. And they came for dinner and he brought me the script and I didn't understand one word of it. But of course, I always did student films. That was just, did several, never went anywhere, you know. But if they don't have professional actors, how are they going to learn to direct? That was my feeling. So I said, of course I'll do it. I didn't know it was going to take like two years to do it on and off, but it did. It 
well into when I was doing Little House on the Prairie uh, quite often. And David Lynch only shot after midnight. So some of these times, some of these nights were a little precarious because I had to be at work at 6 a.m. at Paramount for Miss Beetle. Um, but I always did a student film. And look, he won the you know, L.A. Film Festival Award uh, when it was released. Yeah, he had started his career. So that's how I got into all the other shows that he did, you know, Twin Peaks, and, you know, whatever, whatever David did, he tried to include me. I always appreciate that about him is that you see those same faces and even the, the people behind the camera seem to be the same people a lot of times. Absolutely. Yeah, he's very faithful. And, and I learned a lot by working with him. You know, even though he was a student filmmaker, I tried not to judge him as an amateur because how is that going to help him was my thinking. You know, I had to, you know, follow the, whatever he said as direct, director is what I did. Uh, even though I didn't understand it, it was his show, he directed, and I followed his direction. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, what were you doing under the bed, you know, before? <laughs> said, well, he told me to pull and pull and pull until he told me to let go. So that's what I was doing under the bed. Tell me how you got involved with Human Highway. It's such an interesting film. Before I did Little House on the Prairie, I had a clothing store in Los Angeles called The Liquid Butterfly. You know, we were all hippies back then. It was, you know, the, well, you know, it was the early 70s and we were all flower children and smoking dope and all of that. And my clothing store was in an office building upstairs across from Lookout Management. And Lookout Management managed Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Jackson Brandt, you know, everybody that was super hip at the time. And because they were across the hall from me, I, you know, they were in my store a lot. And I started dating the manager there, Elliot Roberts, because I, I met Neil. I met Neil Young and everybody else. And he, was, he wanted to do a film. He, was directing a, he wrote and was directing a film. And I was an actress and he knew that. And so he gave me the part, one of the leads, which was Charlotte, the waitress. So it took us four weeks to shoot. And my, one of my roommates was the producer and a lot of other friends that I met in the same building. The building where I had my clothing store was called the, I'll think of it in a minute and come back to it. But it was owned by this very weird lady who lived on the property in a little house at the end of the parking lot. Oh, it was called the Clear Thoughts Building. And upstairs were all these uh, producers, directors, writers, editors. In fact, part of Woodstock was edited there. And so I met all these, I met all these new friends who were in the movie business and rock and roll. So of course, Neil wrote a part for me in the movie. <laughs> so I played Charlotte, the waitress. Yep. It was one of the most fun times I ever had. So interesting to me that so many of the people that were in that end up then working with you in Twin Peaks. I mean, with Russ Tamblin and um, Dean Stockwell and Dennis Hopper ended up being in Blue Velvet, I suppose. I don't know how the crossover happened, quite frankly. It, it just was coincidental. I guess, I guess we were the hot people at the time. <laughs> I just have to laugh at all that. You know, we were all having such a good time. The dope that was being smoked and 
the romances that were going on. It just, we were all, we were just having a really good time. Well, tell me what else do you remember about making the movie? It was written as we went along. In fact, yeah, we would, we would get there in the morning and get into costume and makeup. And then we'd go to the set, which was the diner, basically, most of the time. And Neil was directing, and he was also playing the lead. And he would say, okay, in this scene, um, so-and-so, the cook is banging on, banging his frying pan or spatula on the counter, and the other waitress is getting upset. So, okay, let's go, shoot. So we would shoot the scene with Dennis Hopper and Sally Kirkland and, and me. I was playing Charlotte, the waitress. Then we would finish, and Neil would say, okay, cut. And then Jeannie Field, who is one of the producers, would write it down, everything we did. So it was written after we did it, in other words. And then that night, they would figure out where to go from there. And the next day, we'd come in. They'd say, okay, now, Lionel Switch, the mechanic, is going to come in. To, you know, that's how we did it. We, we improvised, and then it became a script. Wow. Had you ever done anything like that before? Never. I had never done anything like that. In fact, half the time when I was singing, I just made it up, walking along, you know, singing. And <laughs> it was just, and I'm not a singer, which is the funnier part, because my friends tell me, don't, please don't sing. You can't carry a tune. But apparently Neil, Neil thought it was fine when I sang Moon Glow, and he whistled along with me. It was crazy. How was Dennis Hopper to work with on that one? Crazy. Absolutely out of his mind out of his mind when we were doing it. I mean, Neil just went along with it and let him play that character because he, there was no controlling him. And later on, Dennis became a really responsible person and, and actor. But at that time in his life, he was like over the moon and out of control wacko. So Neil Young just used that as part of his character. You know, in fact, he really did hurt Sally Kirkman. He forget what he did. She had to go to the hospital because uh, I think he hit her with a knife or something. And she had to, she had to go to the hospital. <laughs> no, no, it was awful. But he was in character and she wouldn't get out of the way. And she just kept complaining about him. And, and that's what happened. It was out of control. He didn't try to stab her. It was just she, she just wouldn't get out of the way. So anyway. She was a case, too. <laughs> I was surprised at just how good of an actor Neil Young was. I think he was playing what he felt was the true Neil Young. A real goofy, crazy, not crazy, but innocent. When he played Lionel, I think that's what he really, really thought of himself. You know, he was just was there. And, and he was consistent. He was the most consistent character in the whole movie. He never broke character. He was always Lionel, Lionel Switch. The bits of him and, and Russ Tamblin going back and forth, they're comedy gold. Oh, yeah. But they made that up as they went along. That has to be some, some pressure on you. I mean, I'm sure you're used to improvisation, but to do an entire film like that. I couldn't believe it. I was so, I was so amazed that I got to do it. Because I was like, why me? You know, why, why did he want... I've, in all the shows that I've done, all the TV shows and stuff, I never got to play a sexy part. 
I always had to play the straight girl, you know, the good girl. Always, everything you see me in, or basically everything you see me in. But he let me go for my Marilyn Monroe side. I, that's, in my, in my mind, I was Marilyn Monroe, sexy, and I could sing. <laughs> that's what happened, you know, when you let somebody go. Think if I was in any other place. But, see, I knew everybody. They were all my friends. And he was so complimentary that I just was, I was comfortable. You know, I was really comfortable. But everybody's consistent in their part. They were all, you know, they were not just musicians or, you know, Devo. They were the nuclear garbage collectors. Well, how crazy does that make you if all you're doing all day is collecting nuclear waste? That's why they glowed. They glowed all the time. <laughs> and I think, you know what that came from? All the, all the stuff in the middle where, where Lionel is on tour you know, as a rock and roll star and Devo was there. That was shot two years before. That was shot for real as a documentary on Neil Young being on tour. They never sold it. So what he did was he wrote a movie around it and made Lionel switch an auto mechanic who dreamt of being a movie rock and roll star. That was a dream. Remember, he gets hit in the head with a wrench under the car and dreams the whole tour. But they had already shot that years before. I know you're a working actress, so you're probably, you know, once you're done with that, you're on to the next thing. But do you remember anything about the movie being released or not being released? It was weird because, I mean, we had a big release in a theater. I think it was a big theater on Hollywood Boulevard. We had a big opening and stuff. He never really got the backing to promote it. I don't know. We were kind of laughed at. The same way... When Little House on the Prairie started, when Michael Landon started Little House on the Prairie, we were laughed at in Hollywood. However, NBC was totally behind him because he was Michael Landon, but nobody gave us any credit whatsoever. And can you imagine next year's our 50th anniversary of being on the air, Little House on the Prairie, daily, all over the world? I remember it being huge. And I remember Mrs. Beetle, or Miss Beetle, I should say. You Miss eventually Beetle. got married on the show, right? I did. I married the pig farmer, and we had a baby, and we moved out of Walnut Grove. And the reason we had to move out of Walnut Grove, because they had to bring in, and this is true, another school teacher who was, you recall, Laura Ingalls married Almanzo Wilder to become Laura Ingalls Wilder. Well, they had to bring Almanzo into the story so his sister moved to town and became the teacher. So they t that was planned four years in advance because they, they told me when I got the part, it was only for four years because Miss Beetle would leave then and another teacher would come in with Almanzo, her brother. And that was part of the true story. So everybody said, why did you leave? I said, I was paid to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually you would write your memoir back in what was that 2016 why then why that particular time to write that i never wanted to write it i never had a clue what happened was i retired in 1965 and i moved to napa where i live now and because i was kind of known in the entertainment industry somebody asked me if i would be in the local christmas pageant as the mother and you know that kind of a ticket selling gimmick that they were looking for. So the parents in, um, oh, what's it called? I can't remember the 
it's a classic Christmas story and ballet. But I had a lot of downtime because I was only in two scenes, but I had to hang out at rehearsal forever. And there was somebody else that had to hang out because his children were in, in the musical. And so his name was Andy Dembski. He was a local newspaper man here in Napa. So he and I used to sit on the floor of the entry waiting for the rehearsal to be over. And we'd just sit and talk. And I would tell him stories. I would tell him stories because we had a lot of downtime. So he kept saying, you should write a book. And I went, damn right, write a book. I barely got out of high school. He said, no, 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 no. Honestly, you should write a book. You've got a lot of good stories. And I said, Andy, really? He said, okay, don't write a book. Tell me some stories. So that's what I did. Every week we would, every other week, almost two years, we met at Starbucks. And we sat for about an hour and I would tell him a story. And he would write it down. And then he would bring back the written, you know, the typed up story. And I would give it to me. And I would correct it or expound on it or whatever and tell him another story. So that's how Little House in the Hollywood Hills became a reality. Just fought it and fought it and fought it. And he finally got a publisher and I went, holy shit. <laughs> and it's still selling. It is still selling. In fact, you want to hear a funny story. I just, my husband just bought me an, a new iPad. It's called Star or something. Um, because I'm going to be going on a lot of trips. I've got a lot of, sh- not shows to film, but fan events coming up. And I travel all over the country. And I'm so bored on the plane that I look, I was looking for something. So he bought me this iPad. And I opened it up and it has all these features, including audiobooks. I went, oh, gosh, audiobooks. I click on it. And guess what audiobook is on my iPad? My book. I couldn't believe it. I thought just on here because my name, because this is mine, couldn't figure it out. But that's probably why it happened. But the, the book, the audio book and my book is still selling. I still get royalties. Selling, selling quite a bit, I may say. When you go to these conventions, are people there for you for Little House, for the Twin Peaks stuff, for Highway to Heaven? I mean, you've been in so many things. Tremors? Most of the events are for Little House on the Prairie. And they're mostly in the Midwest. I go to Missouri and Minnesota and Alabama and Iowa a lot. However, in March, I'm heading to Tucson, Arizona to do what they call a West Fest. And it's for all the Western TV shows, you know, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, all of those that I did. So I'm going for that. But then right afterward, I'm heading to Missouri um, to do a Little House event. And then Michael Gross. Do you know who Michael Gross is? From Tremors plus Family Ties, yeah. Yes, exactly. Michael called me a couple of days ago and said, Charlotte, we're having a Tremors festival, and I want you to, you know, blah, blah. And I said, Michael, when is it? He told me, and I said, I can't go. He said, what? He said, no, they're running all the Tremors movies, and you're in two of them. I'm like, so sorry, I can't go. I'm going to be in Tucson, Arizona. He went, oh, shit. Who would have thought at 82 there would be a demand for my for my attention? <laughs> I have to ask you, how was it returning back to being Betty Briggs all those years later for the third season in Twin Peaks? Oh, it was wonderful. It was like coming home. You know, I was in the last in the last episode or the last show. I only had one scene, and that and that was okay. That was okay because it was a plot line, 
And David was, you know, sweet enough to fly me up to Seattle to, to do that, that one scene. It was wonderful because it was all my friends, you know, that I worked with for, you know, a year and a half or two years on Twin Peaks. It was wonderful. I was thrilled. And I was sad because the week I was shooting was the week that Catherine Colton died. And we were supposed to have, we were supposed to have lunch or dinner or something because I was arriving on a Wednesday, working Thursday. She was arriving Thursday, working Friday. And when I got there, I got, I was in the co- in the wardrobe and I said, have you heard from, you know, from Catherine? They said, oh, didn't, didn't you hear? She can't come. She's very ill. I said, what? We're supposed to have lunch tomorrow. I said, no, no, no. David is going to her to film her scene. She was dying as he filmed that. She literally died a couple of days later. She pulled herself together to do that scene. And that is Catherine Colson. That is Catherine Colson. It was amazing. It was amazing. Shocking. As a fan, it was so sad. At the end of every episode, he would have a, you know, in memory of, and it was their last appearance. And you're just, when her name came up, I, I almost lost it if, if I didn't lose I it. Know. I know. I've got some, some wonderful memories, you know. I, I left, of course, I met Catherine back when Jack and I were doing Eraserhead. And, you know, because she was there every day. She was the camera assistant and she did Jack's hair and, and we became we became really good friends even after they split up. They, you know, we she and I were good friends, and it was great to be work, you know to work with her on Twin Peaks and everything we got to do together. But I miss her. She's just one of the most glorious women I've ever known in my life. Well, it was very nice to have that kind of tie up for Dean Ashbrook and his character and your character with uh, that kind of message from the major. It was, wasn't it? So other than going to conventions, what's keeping you busy these days, or is that enough? Well, what I do is I, I'm a cancer survivor, and I raise, I raise money for a cancer program in Napa, where I live, and I make tote bags with pictures from Little House on the Prairie. So I spend my days sewing and shipping out. I have five bags ready to ship this moment on my table here, ready to go out tomorrow to the post office. I put them on Facebook, and people write to me and tell me what character they want, and I make the bag and ship them out, and I give a percentage to the cancer program here in Napa. So that's what key. I sew every day. I sew every day. I just shipped 20 bags to Illinois for my up-and-coming visit back there, and I've got 30 ready to go to Tucson, so, yeah, that's what I do. I sew every day. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Okay. I look forward to hearing, seeing, whatever you're doing with this. I come down from the misty mountain. I got lost on the human highway. Take my head. Refreshing fountain Take my eyes From what they've seen Take my head And change my mind How could people get so unkind? All right.
right. We are back and we were talking about Human Highway and you were talking about that love and affection that brought this movie to life. And obviously Neil Young still must really like this movie because of the way that he poured so much into the director's cut. You know, the, the version we've been talking about mostly in the first half of the show was about the director's cut, the one that came out, I think it was 2016. And before that was a VHS version that was released in 95. And I think that's the same version that played theatrically whenever this played, maybe 82. I need to see if I can find ads for this in the paper or anything, because I'm curious what kind of release it got. He went back and he tweaked a lot of stuff to see that original VHS version versus the DVD slash Blu-ray version. There's a lot of little differences. Some of them are pretty darn subtle, but then there are other times where you're just like, oh, the editing is so different in this whole thing. Like we really stay with Devo for a long time in that director's cut, whereas their performance of Troubled Man is really chopped up in the original version of this, the VHS version. So it's it's kind of interesting just to see that, just to see that beginning part of it. But then you know, you mentioned Darren, the whole thing of the end of the world, the, what is it? Skeeter Davis tune that's being sung. There's a lot of smaller differences in here. Of all the edits in it, that's the one that puzzles me most. In the original cut, that scene where her sitting there, Sally Kirkland sitting there crying and listening to the end of the world comes after she's been fired. In a spectacularly petty move by Dean Stockwell, because he's not intended on paying her anyway. He didn't have to fire her at that point. But in the other version, the director's cut, they moved that to earlier in the film. And I'm guessing that that was because they wanted to show a sense of the sadness taking the place since old Ottawa died. It's the only reason I can think of to do that particular edit. The Devo section is for why, if my memory is right, the VHS, they cut out a line of dialogue because there's that whole thing where they, they talk to Alan Myers, who's their amazing drummer. And so they're like, hey, you know, they're about Linear Valley. And they're like, hey, Al, don't you got a little China doll down down a Linear Valley? Yeah. And he's like, yeah, her dad hates my guts. He's some kind of Tai Chi nut. I think Mark Motherbone says, why don't we give him a barrel bath? <laughs> and which is, I was like, I missed that so much because I love that, that little, little interaction. And Alan Myers in real life was a legit master of Tai Chi. Little, little in, in joke there. When there's that whole, like, it begins with Boogie Boy, it begins after the apocalypse, and it begins with him talking like the radio DJs aren't there at all. And then we kind of, I guess we're going back in time to more the beginning of the story, because it really, like, the stuff with Boogie Boy that's at the beginning of this VHS version was at the end of the DVD version, so it's really, I could see where this VHS version would be even more confusing, because you're like, wait a second is the world over and are we going back in time to see how it ended or so that's what my assumption is and yeah you're even talking about like the stuff that i mentioned earlier about the radioactivity and you know you get it from radiators no you get it from radios there's a really hard edit while they are talking where they just boom cut right back to devo and you miss the whole thing about the radios and I don't even know if you get all the jokes about the radiators at some point. It's just like, okay, that was really strange. And you can hear it in the audio too. You can hear like a little click there. Cause I was watching it with headphones on. I'm like, well, that was very odd. I'm not sure why we did that, but I think the biggest 
part of this is the biggest difference is that dream sequence. I think it starts a lot earlier and it goes for a lot longer and you get more stuff as far as you, I think you see the milkman in the dream sequence. You see much more of cracker slash Dennis Hopper in that dream sequence as well. And then he adds this really awful filter thing to it to make it very tough to even see what's going on sometimes. And I'm so glad he got rid of that because that I just kept writing weird visual effects, weird visual effects. And I'm just like, this, this is awful. Just get rid of all of this stuff. And I'm so glad that he did because now it's like, oh, I can actually see this. And I wish I could see it in full without that weird special effect. Because like I said, he chops down. That's like, here's a little section of this. Here's a little section of that. You know, you get a little bit of the milk bath, but then poor Darren's watching that full milk bath with, uh, the waitress drinking the milk out of the milk bath. I'm sure that must have been tough for you. So I, I, I'm sorry about that. He seems to have learned the art of editing since the you know since the original cut to this one because this film flows so much better. It's less choppy, and I think that the dream sequence needed being cut down. And I think it focuses now on what it needs to focus on, which is my my hey hey and the old section with the Native Americans, the stuff with him on stage and the two are not going, or, you know, I'm not remember if it's not going well, if it is going well, but all of that you don't really need in the film. Well, it's really weird too, because Jimmy McDonough wrote a, um, a biography of Neil Young. I think it's just called Shaky. And he's describing all of this stuff in the dream sequence. And I'm just like, I don't remember that. I don't remember this either. And I'm like, is he talking about behind the scenes things? And then I finally watched the VHS version. I was like, oh, okay. Now this makes a lot more sense. I was like, Jimmy, what were you talking about? He wasn't high on airplane glue. <laughs> there was He was actually referencing. I do I do agree. The editing and the director's cut so much better. And that that effect. And I'm I'm usually very pro like weird opticals, but that effect, I mean, you were talking about something wearing out it's welcome. Yeah, because that sequence is longer. And so you get more of that smeary. It just, yeah, that was, uh, it was the choice. And I'm glad he unchose it for the director's cut. But it would be cool to have like, like a different composite. You say this about other films, but in this instance, like the filmmaker owns it and he's still with us. So I feel like, well, maybe that would be cool. I'm sure there are a number of like boutique labels that would like, oh my God, we get to release something with Neil Young. I'm surprised there isn't a fan edit, at least. Just put them together. Yeah, God. I've, there are films way more obscure that have, like, composite cuts that Mike and I have actually discussed on, the, on previous episodes. But And Mike found them, because you are the true detective, the film detective here. Plenty of people don't know about this movie, but they certainly know who Neil Young is. I'm just amazed how obscure this film still is. Because, like, when I first discovered it, it was from that review, and I was just like, but I'd just been through a massive 1970s Neil Young phase, and I'd never heard of this film, and I'd been a fan of Dean Stockwell since I was a kid, thanks to Quantum Leap. You know, I was like 10 or 11 when that started, So, and then obviously in my teens, onto Blue Velvet and films like that, and I was just like, Neil Young and Dean Stockwell made a film together? Why have I never heard of this before? And even now, you, you mention it to people, and oh, what's that? But Neil Young, Devo, Dean Stockwell, Dennis Hopper, you'd think it would have multiple audiences built in. 
if anybody listening, this hopper as a fry cook feeding a raccoon. I mean, if that doesn't sell you, and he's even a little sleazy. I can't remember if it's in the, because at this point, like, because we're, we're talking about both cuts, and I know for sure it's the VHS cut when Charlotte's talking about she's going to be in the talent show and she's excited. And then at the end, right before they hard cut to something else, he's like, Are you going to be naked? And I feel like I've I I've worked with that fry cook. I'm pretty sure. Like it's that is so on point. <laughs> well, that's a running thing in the director's cut, isn't it? Because even over the beginning, when people are talking about it, they're saying that Charlotte, that girl from Otto's or Otto's Diner, she's going to get a clothes off. It's said a couple of times in the run up, but I think it's only the one time in the original cut. I think it's just in that Dennis Harper line that they last mentioned, but. And the directors is dropped in everywhere. Oh, it was refreshing as well. See Charlotte Stewart, you know, pushing 40 by that point, playing the sexy role, which is unusual in Hollywood, playing the love interest, playing the sexy role. It's a bit of a change for what you'd expect from Hollywood in the early 80s. You'd expect it to be in her 20s. Yeah, I love that all of the actresses seem to be of a certain age or older. And it's just like, yeah, that's great. You know, and especially these three waitresses that are working in this there's barely anybody that comes to this other than a you know, other than the the sheik and his harem that show up which is very unusual but you know you got like dennis hopper in that really bad wig coming through and picking up that very angry woman who had her car worked on by lionel but you don't get a whole lot of other people coming through and so they feel much more like you know it feels like alice you know you get like the older type waitresses rather than these young girls that are just like, I'm going to be here for, you know, two weeks and then move on to stardom or something. It's like, everybody feels very grounded. What was the point of having Hopper come into it a second time, other than just to do the doubling thing that they do with so many roles in this? Because obviously Mother plays two roles, Hopper's playing two roles, Young plays two roles, Stockwell even plays two roles, because he's playing old and young Otto. So this. Again, another link to Lynch, all the doubling of the actors and characters going on. Yeah, I'm not sure why they're doubling up everybody, but I was just like, okay, that's the thing. If you want to do it, it feels like somebody said, well, Neil gets to play two roles. How about I get to play two roles? It seems to exist mainly to give Dean Stockwell that little Groucho-esque line to the woman as he's pushing in the car. Oh, he know he wants to get there. You know how. You know how to get there. Why don't you get lost together? And it's very much a Groucho kind of line. And I genuinely believe the Stockwell is playing it that way. He's underplaying it for to have the whole comedy feel. And I, I love it. I could I could talk about Dean Stockwell all day. I think he's amazing. Amazing actor. And I love the eyebrows. He's got some like crazy ass. They're almost like old man brows. Young Otto, because they're like combed upwards and He's, yeah, no, Dean Stockwell's gift and everything. And his, like, green, like, he's dressed up, like, totally, like, money in a way, because he's got this very, like, green suit. And he, but he looks amazing in it. Like, anybody else, it would just be, like, a total used car salesman nightmare. He looks so devilish, so demonic in this, that one scene where he hands Irene the new rules and the camera just close, close up on his face and he just has this really devilish little expression to his face. I love it so much. You know, what's tough to find these days too, is the actual soundtrack for this. I've been looking everywhere for just, you know, the soundtrack, I guess I can go to Discogs and buy it, but I was just looking to download some of these songs. Mm -mm. Nope. Not available. 
And then even with Worried Man, I had to go to like an obscure, you know, Devo release type thing. You know, of course, their their stuff is a lot easier to find, but just to track down the one song, I was like, wow, this is taking a lot more than I thought it would. I was actually really pleased to see that in the Dropbox because I've been looking for it everywhere unsuccessfully. <laughs> yeah, it, they put it out on the complete truth about devolution, I think. Or no, that's the music video, but I can't remember where the the actual song, they ended up releasing it on some sort of like rarities collection. God, because they've done a number of those. See, even I'm like, oh God, because there's like hardcore, hardcore Devo 1 and 2 and other, but yeah, but that's not a complaint. Any, any Devo that we can get is good Devo. Uh, Pioneers Who Got Scalped Disc 1. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As opposed to another album I found yesterday called When Pigs Fly, Songs You Never Thought You Would Hear, where Diva does a cover of Ohio, the Neil Young song. Which, again, another another great connector, not just because that song, but I mean, Casali. Yeah, I read an interview with Jerry online today prepping for this where, I mean, he basically said for him, the conception of Devo started with that event. Yeah, that's right. He said something like, that's it. We give up on being hippies and we dropped out of the peace stuff then, didn't he? And that's why they became about devolution instead. I wonder if there's a cover of a Devo cover of Revolution Blues anywhere. I'd like to hear that. I do know on Devo Live, which is got some very rare live stuff from their early, from real early era. Do you hear them do a song called Beulah? Which I, I'm not saying, I'm not to say that again, somebody might've been a fibbit in the band, but on the uh, intro, they say this is from Jerry and the Pacemakers. <laughs> I don't, maybe it was, but I do recommend seeking that out. But, but actually go back to the movie. What do you guys think the human highway of the title is referring to? That's a good question. For me, it's that these people are stuck in one place and it's all the people that are kind of coming through their lives, that it's the road outside of the gas station, that that's the human highway. But you come up with something better, I'm going to buy it. Well, it was the Neil Young song, Human Highway, which was really about the way society can break individuality, wasn't it? And you can lose yourself on the human highway. And Yes, these people are all kind of lost because they're not going anywhere. They, they're not really doing anything with their lives. The biggest dream, other than you know Lionel's dream of being a rock star, is Charlotte's dream of just winning a talent contest. That's the most it seems they can hope for. So, I guess if he took it from this from his own song, like all these characters are lost on the human highway. Really, I'm going with Darren. I'm going with Darren. I'm with you, Mike. I'm like I'll buy Darren's for. Neil Young, just the, the wordplay too, just the phrase "human highway," just automatically just grabs you. Did either of you watch Greendale? Is a uh, two thousand and three film? I have not. I've been curious about it because I didn't even know about it till when I was researching "human highway" a while back for Culture Cast. Because yes, I'm on that. <laughs> That's how much I love this. Everybody talk about it, but. But yeah, I saw that and I was like, wow, Neil Young made another movie. It looks vastly different. It's filmed more like, more basically, it looks like old home videos for a lot of the film. And it's about a small town and the album Greendale was, you know, songs about the people and family in the small town. And he's basically got a cast of actors miming to his songs throughout the entire thing. It's a full blown musical, really, but everything's done in mime and everything's low key. It's nothing like Human Highway. There's none of the bright colors. It's very muted, very dulled out. It's very about environmentalism again, though. So that kind of link is going through 
both of his films. And then he also directed Rust Never Sleeps, is that right? Or Rust Live? Rust Live? I, I, I think he directed some of his the live videos, yeah. yeah. Human Highway came out with a box set of Rust Never Sleeps and Live Rust, and then the movie as well. I don't know if it was kind of hidden amongst the things, kind of like the Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park had like a... Oh, Kissology. Yeah, and it had... Oh, you know I know that. Oh, yeah, but it had it was like hidden in there, and then it was the like European version. It wasn't the TV version that we all grew up with, so cut out some of the cartoony music. Come on. The music's way better, because they actually use Kiss music. I'm, I'm sort of torn, though, because I love, like, I now like, see Anthony Zerby as Edward Devon walking to, like, Mr. Make-Believe off the Gene Simmons solo album. But but they cut out some of Ace's great dialogue, which was total bullshit. Like, we don't get, oh, my God, oh, Beethoven's fifth, you know? I mean, come on, act! Like, he's doing the act thing. I just cut. God, I love that movie for completely different reasons. Like, there are some films you love and you could say, recommend to people, like, this is a really great movie. Human Highway is one of those. Like, no, this is a great movie and it has a lot to offer and there's some beautiful, like, skill and vision going on and heart. And then there's Kiss Me, the Phantom, which has very little of any of those. But I love it. I love it. I, you know, it's, I mean, come on, Anthony Zerby as Abner Devereaux fighting Kiss. But yeah, it's off the, I believe it's off Kissology Volume 2. Right. I don't even know if it's listed on the back of the box. I mean, it is so hidden in there that it's like, oh, what is this thing? It's almost like an Easter egg on the disc. Oh, I found it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. father we want to be alone please you like me just a little bit your general appearance is not distasteful thank you the whites of your eyes are clear your cornea is excellent your cornea is terrific love isn't so simple ninochka ninochka why do doves bill and cool why do snails the coldest of all creatures circle interminably around each other. Why do moths fly hundreds of miles to find their mates? Why do flowers slowly open their petals? Only Notchka, surely you feel some slight symptom of the divine passion. A general warmth in the palms of your hands. A strange heaviness in your limbs. A burning of the lips that isn't thirst, but something a thousand times more tantalizing, more exalting than thirst. You're very talkative.
That's right. We're back next week with a look at Ernst Lubitsch's Ninochka. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Heather and Darren. So, Heather, what is the latest with you, ma'am? Over at my website, MondoHeather.com, I recently have written a tribute to Robert Hamer, who was one half of Bards and Barns, which is a band that most people know of for doing fish heads. But there's so much more to that band and to the work that he and Bill Mummy created. So that's over there, and I'm very proud of it. So please read it. I also have an essay on, um, speaking of Fox Harris, Anna Macabro has released, um, like Dr. Calgary, Stephen Sadian's amazing 1989 film. And in the limited edition run of that Blu-ray, I have an essay. So you can read that if you get the limited edition. If you don't have it, I'll probably post it at some point later. I don't know. But please buy it. Sharing any goodies until that bad boy is sold. So... Of course, you can go to my website, Mondo Heather. I'm on Patreon, Mondo Heather, social, Facebook. And I'm also on the Dark Habits podcast talking about Johnny Guitar with host Spencer Seams and the co-host Jessica. And we got to have a lot of fun with that. And I got to hail everything Sterling Hayden. And Darren, what's going on with you, sir? It's a little bit weird me promoting myself because all of my stuff is actually on Patreon. So it's behind a paywall. So I feel really strange about saying oh go and pay money and listen to this as it's not it's not even my patron but what i'm going to promote my podcast partner barry dodds has got a public facing podcast the warriors he's a stand-up comedian it's about comedy and mental health it's brilliant work so go check that out if you enjoy him on there he's got two years worth of material about films with me on the patron and every month we cover a different subgenre of cinema i talk you through a history of that subgenre and Basically, a top. We do our top five films from within it. So this is my first public facing podcast, and I'm. It's been a real treat. You've both been so great to work with, and thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so glad to have you. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at WeirdingWayMedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
made it to the end of this episode of The Projection Booth. And as the end credits roll, we wanted to thank you, the listening audience. Here at The Projection Booth Podcast with Mike White, host extraordinaire, Bang. Bang.